Welcome to the Upper Room Podcast. Thank you so much for stopping by. I'm Pastor Carl McLaughlin from Calvary Pentecostal Church in Euless, Texas. We're located in Dallas-Fort Worth, where 8 million call DFW home. Whether you're tuning in to Sunday or Wednesday's message, we pray that you will find words of encouragement. It is our mission to provide a positive and encouraging voice in the midst of uncertainty. I pray that you will be blessed by today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Upper Room Podcast. We are so happy you're here. This Wednesday, Pastor McLaughlin continued his series, Building a Godly Home. This week, he focused on types of relationships between parents and their children and the attachment styles that can be potentially produced by these relationships. This episode is packed full of relevant information that we hope you find encouraging. He even exist. He does not even live. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you will abide in me and my word abides in you, you shall bear much fruit. This subject of attachments goes all the way back to the garden. I know that some of you are therapists that are here in the audience. I know that some of you are educators. And so somewhere you may have come across the attachment theory by Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth. And that occurred in about, mm, really Bowlby brought it to the forefront in the 50s. And then Mary Ainsworth wanted to replicate with... Uh, with another study and so she actually added something to Bowlby's study and it's called the stranger situation and basically the study revolved around a mom and a mom's attachment to her children and there was a longitudinal study that was done with a mom and her attachment to her children and how these attachments impacted those children throughout their life and then even into married life and then it becomes cyclical or it reproduces and reproduces and reproduces. And, and so that was, that was in the 50s and 60s, that theory, that theory came about. And so in any theory, in any theory, what you want to do is say, is there a theology behind this? Is, is it biblical? Well, can we apply this? Is it okay where two rivers would meet in the middle and then by virtue of taking a look first at theology, secondly, theory, can we merge these together and can we break it down into a practical application? And so that's what I would attempt to do tonight. And so obviously I'm a preacher. I was trained and conditioned to think theology first, and, but not to discredit theory. And so what I would like to do is take a look at both of these and let's just talk about it a little bit. Um, and first and foremost, before Bowlby, John Bowlby, British psychologist, before Mary Ainsworth ever even posited the attachment theory, it goes all the way back to the garden. And so theology from the garden forward really established it because all truth is God's truth. And so Bowlby and, and Ainsworth just kind of borrowed this attachment concept. Whether they knew it was a theological premise or not, who knows. But, but this is what I do know is that its theology begins in the garden with the very first man that was ever created because without the breath of God moving into Adam there was no divine attachment and there had to be a divine attachment before there could be healthy human attachments and so Adam had to learn how to relate to God before Eve ever comes into the picture if you're looking for a guy to date and one day marry make sure that he knows how to walk with God before you he asks you to walk with him. Make sure he's a connected and attached to Jehovah Jireh before he's asking for a connection from you. If he's not connected vertically, don't connect with him. Run as fast as you can. You're not going to change him. You're not going to manipulate him into walking with God. If he doesn't have a walk with God before you date him, don't date him, baby. Don't date him, honey. You don't want that kind of... And gentlemen, listen... She may be all that in the way that she looks, in the way that she walks, in the way that she talks. She may have all that, but listen, she may have she may have everything. But you gotta listen to me. If she can't walk with God, 
You don't want an anchor in your life. You don't want somebody that's pulling you down. Let's go to church on Wednesday. I don't want to go to church on Wednesday. Well, then you're not for me. I'm not detaching from God so that I can attach to you. I'm not going to be a dysfunctional individual spiritually to try to make something work with us because you don't want me if I'm not attached to him. I'm not a good person when I'm not attached to God. I mean, somebody needs to help me right now. You know how you were out in the world. You know how you were before you attached to Jesus Christ. You were a rebel. You were a wreck. You were disgusted. But when you got the Holy Ghost, when he breathed into you, that's what the Holy Ghost is, the breath of God. He breathed on them and said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. So there is a divine attachment, a theological attachment, before there is a theoretical attachment. However, however, by exploring and identifying some theories, specifically the attachment theory, there's a lot that we can learn. A lot that we can learn. When God breathed into Adam, he breathed a soul attachment into mankind. God places Adam in an environment that provided trust through proximity and closeness. God provided a safe haven and God provided a security and Adam knew God will always be there for me. Psalm 150 verse 6 is about attachment. Psalm 150 and 6, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Praise to God was meant to be as common as breathing. Praise isn't just relegated or confined to Wednesday and Sunday. If you're breathing, you ought to be praising. When you breathe, a praise should be coming out. When you get up in the morning to drive to work. Why? Because there's a divine attachment when you praise God. When you stop praising God, you detach from Him. But there's still a hunger for attachment. So you will attach yourself to sinful, unhealthy things when you depart from praising God. But when a backslider comes home, what's the first thing they do? Repent and praise God. They begin to talk in tongues again. So there is a reattachment. We need an attachment, a reattachment, another reattachment. When you come on Wednesday, you ought to be praising. But it can't be confined to just church services or, or special conferences and different things. If you have breath, God breathed into you. This is a soul attachment. So fundamentally, fundamentally in us, there's a soul attachment if we're breathing. And that breath is for praise. And that praise keeps the attachment together. Why is the study of attachment theory important? And how does it relate to my walk with God? Is there even a theological meaning behind attachment theory? Adam and Eve sinned. And when they sinned, they detached from God. When they detached from God and they lost that divine attachment, and sin entered the picture, and they attached themselves to sin, shame, fear, and guilt was now the new emotional field that became the framework for Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel to function in. So literally, this theory or theology of attachment can produce emotional fields from which every family system functions. They're functioning in an emotional field. How is it, in, uh, or how is it important to us? And how does it build godly homes? Number one, we first learn to function spiritually and emotionally in our families. Number two, the patterns and processes learned in family life are then transferred into church life. Why is this subject important in pastoring? And why would I even take time on a Wednesday night to talk about attachment theory as a pastor? Isn't that supposed to be left to the counselor, to the therapist, to the uh, uh, Doctor, why would a pastor address this? Why would we teach it at the church? We take the person we have become into all relationships. 
including those relationships in the congregation. Every church member brings emotional processes into church life. The unresolved issues from one emotional field will be acted out in another emotional field. Think with me. The unresolved issues in the family emotional field will be acted out in the church emotional field. Emotional processes of anxiety, conflict, emotional cutoffs, emotional distancing, overfunctioning and underfunctioning, and projection will work in a church family just as they all work in individual families. If we can build godly homes, Calvary, if we can build godly homes with secure attachments in the home life, we will have a godly church with healthy, secure relationships within the church. The theology of attachments is so deep that it affects daily church life and it will exist throughout all eternity. Literally, we are tied together through the apostles' doctrine and through spiritual encounters that we have together. And when there is a spiritual encounter, when somebody, when prodigal walks in, when people like Sunday, when they got the Holy Ghost, there is, there is a firing and there is a wiring together. Why do we celebrate when the prodigal comes home? Because we had a previous relationship with them. There were connections and attachment to them. And when they detached and took off, it broke our hearts. But when they come through the doors, all of our heads are up saying, is today their day? Is this service their service? We are wanting a reattachment and we're watching. And when they pray through to the Holy Ghost, there's celebration. But the Bible says the angels even celebrate in heaven. So there is literally an eternal and a creative attachment that happens when you and I are walking with God. It's more than just human relationships. The Holy Ghost gets involved with this. Can we clap our hands? We need to attach to Him in the family. It's critical, and this goes without saying, but it's critical that what you do here should just be a reflection of what you've been doing at home. You don't want to turn it on here and, and have a spiritual move and a spiritual encounter and then turn it off and you become somebody completely different at home. The spiritual encounter has to happen at home so that then the, when the kids are watching, when people are watching us, they're like, man, they're just, they're just doing at church what they do at home. There's no different. There's no, there's no discrepancy here. It's what it says. Um, having been built, we'll look at it from a theological perspective. <clears throat> um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 through 22. <clears throat> having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, who's the building? Are we talking about brick and mortar? Jackson, are we talking about brick and mortar? What are we talking about? We're talking about, we're talking about the people. So the people are the building. Abishai, do you believe that? You don't believe that? So you believe it's brick and mortar. Well, what do you believe, Bubba? You went like this. So the people are the church. So the people are the brick and mortar. <laughs> I got you on your toes now. I got you on your toes now. You got your thinking cap on now. In whom the whole building, look, all of a sudden, man, people that were about to doze off on me got up right then. It's like, am I next? Oh, no. Is he about to ask me a question? <laughs> In whom the whole building, the church people, not brick and mortar, being fitted together. There's the attachment grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This attachment with one another is through doctrine. This is a powerful thing because, because even when your family walks out, God, this is powerful. Even when your own flesh and blood walks out on doctrine, you feel closer to the people in the church because there is a spiritual, doctrinal, theological attachment that says we got to hold on to this truth. I don't care what they're doing. I don't care what they post on social media. I don't care what's going on. I don't care if they compromise. I don't care if they start cutting their hair. I don't care if they start dressing immodestly. I don't care how they try to twist the scripture for it about it. I'm not attaching to that. I'm attaching with people who have like precious faith, who are tenaciously holding on to doctrine, 
So it's the apostles' doctrine and Jesus who provides this divine attachment with you and I. It's more than us just having a relationship with the church. Jesus is in the middle of it all. Doctrine is in the middle of it all. There's a definite theological premise for attachment. Now watch this. Then it's the Spirit. It's the Word and the Spirit. It's the Word and the Spirit that attaches us together. In whom you also being what? Built together. Attachment. For what? For what purpose? For a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You felt that a moment ago when Blake was leading us and, and you guys you guys started singing it. It was almost like a big choir out there. I felt like, man, this is awesome. It was like a big choir. What was going on right there? It was a dwelling place. God was inhabiting our praise. Let everything that hath breath. What was happening is a few individuals were attaching and praising God. And all of a sudden, we sensed that attachment. We felt that attachment. And the rest of the congregation started joining in. What you might or might not realize is that biologically or physiologically, that there are chemicals that are going off. That oxytocin that produces trust. So when we know that God is near, this is... This is getting leading into attachment theory one, there are a few things that are very important one is proximity one is social referencing uh, there are a couple of things here but this is true theologically when you know that God is right here he's in close proximity you know that he's near social referencing what you what that means is you start looking around what it meant in the study of Bowlby and Ainsworth is that that little child when a stranger walked into the room or they went into a different place they would look up and if they could see mom they knew knew mom was in close proximity there was a social referencing so as long as I can see my mom I'm safe as long as I know she's in close proximity everything's okay I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself but let me just go there and so essentially what would happen is that child would look up at mom if a stranger walked in Ainsworth study when a stranger would walk into the laboratory at the university that she was studying at uh, then they would watch there was a there was a one-way mirror and, she, and Ainsworth was studying the child and the child would look up and would look over and see the stranger and look at mom if mom had a calm look on her face and just like, everything's okay, honey, then all of a sudden the child just calmed down. There was an attachment that trusted mom because mom was always there. And if mom is always there, problem is when an insecure attachment occurs, mom isn't there. And child is looking around saying, where's mom? Where's mom? You'll never have to look around and say, where's God? Where's God? Where's God? He is always right there with you. You can attach to him. You don't have to worry about whether or not he's in close proximity. You don't have to worry about social referencing. You don't have to worry about a safe haven. He'll provide the safe haven. He, you've got reference with him. He's inside of you. If I ascend to heaven or make my bed in hell, God, you're with me. I'm attached to you and you're attached to me. And because of that consistency in my walk with him, I trust him. And by virtue of that trust, based off of his consistency and trustworthiness, I'm a secure saint of God because I know he's close to me no matter what darkness I'm going through. And ultimately, attachment will speak in eternity, bride and groom, in the marriage supper of the Lamb. All starting in the garden with one man, to heaven when we're raptured when we go to the marriage supper of the Lamb and this is what it said in Revelation 19.7 let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife, the bride, the church has made herself ready we walk in attachment to him with the Holy Ghost on earth but this power of attachment the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout and when the rapture happens you talk about attachment when the rapture happens, we're going to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When tribulation's happening on earth, we are forever. So this issue of attachment will speak throughout eternity. Don't tell me the Holy Ghost isn't powerful enough to keep you. If he wants to marry you in eternity, he's going to keep you. He didn't do anything wrong to you for you to backslide. God is a good God. He's too wise to make a mistake, and he's too good to do anything bad. He died for you so that he could forever be attached to you. And he calls you his wife. He'll fight for you. He'll work for you. He'll provide for you. 
So how are attachment styles shaped and what are the styles? There are four styles. One is a secure attachment while the other three are insecure attachments. The first is secure, that's what it is, it's secure. The second is avoidant, the third is ambivalent, and the fourth is disorganized. Attachment styles influence, this is important, because, because when I start laying out the signs and you start going, oh my Lord, that's my family. The, the attachment styles inform us, but they do not predict nor do they determine that we'll turn out a certain way. So what you don't want to do is go, oh my goodness, you just described, and it will, it will, it will describe all of us. And you're going to take a look at it and you're going to go, oh my Lord, man, we're, we're messed up. <laughs> we need some help. <laughs> well, yeah, that's why God became flesh, <laughs> to step in and to radically change you and I. The dynamic power of God changes us. It breaks these patterns. So... It informs us, it influences us. All of these systems will influence us, but they cannot determine our outcome and who we become unless you allow it to. The Holy Ghost has to be more powerful and your relationship with Jesus Christ and this word has to be more powerful than any dysfunctional family or attachment style that you're coming out of. You with me? So let's take a look. Secure attachment, how does this work? From about six months of life, children be begin asking some critical questions. They can't speak it. They can't ask them audibly or verbally. But emotionally, they start to ask some things. Is my mom close by? Is she available to me? Can I get to her quickly if I need her? Will she be there for me if I need her? Will she comfort me? Those are the questions that are asked to form this attachment, secure attachment. And there are four principles that are important in these relationship attachments. I mentioned them, but let me mention them again. Social referencing principle, proximity principle, safe haven principle, and then a secure base principle. Let me provide an example. Imagine a mom, let's picture with me and go to the park with me. Let's go to the park together. We're going to the park and mom is sitting on a park bench with her 18-month-old son. Let's just call him Junior or Jackson or Abishai. Say, oh, Pastor, don't, you already picked on, don't pick on us again. Or Jameson or JT or Nolan. I mean, I don't know. Let's just call him Junior, okay? Let's just call him Junior. So Junior, and, and so there's Junior with mom. He's 18 months old, and he, mom's watching Junior, and he's exploring the world around him. Probably the max is about 8 to 10 feet. Junior keeps an eye on his mother, and if he confronts anything, anything that he's unsure about, he will look back to mom to see if everything is okay and I keep, can I keep going to explore the world around me. Developmental psychologists call this social referencing. Is someone a caregiver or someone safe in my life in close proximity or do I have a reference point socially? Go to another church, go somewhere, go to a conference, go to travel to, to China, travel to Germany, travel, and you walk in and you are looking for something to connect. Man, you, you're looking around going, man, I have no reference point here whatsoever. Children begin asking that and we become attached to things. You, you'll drive home and you know where, you know where the, uh, what is it, Bojangles Chicken House is. And you'll know where this is. And you have these little landmarks and it provides security. It provides attachment. So little Junior is looking around at this. You know, what he's saying without words is, hey mom, everything cool? Is it safe? Can I keep exploring? Can I keep looking? Is the building brick and mortar? Is it too dangerous out here? If mom gives him a little smile or, or nod, he'll just keep on playing. Because he looks at the social reference, he looks at proximity, and he said, everything is safe, it's okay right now. If she frowns, 
If he picks up something on mom and she starts to frown or she looks fearful, he'll hesitate. He'll hesitate. Or a child, you know, it's like when we were, at, we were at kids camp and there was this adorable, man, it was just absolutely adorable little boy. And, uh, and he would look at me, but he didn't know me. Like, I'm the stranger. I'm thinking about all of this. And I'm like, in his mind, I'm a stranger. He has no clue who I am. It's like, man, who is this old guy trying to be funny and play with me? And what does he want? And he'd look up at his dad. And he'd look over at me. And he'd, he'd get in his dad's arms and he'd grab his dad's shirt. And then he'd look at me and smile. <laughs> what he was saying is, my dad's right here. It's okay. It's safe. And what is dad doing? When dad smiles and starts talking to me, and, and little boy is looking at Brother McLaughlin and his dad, and they're both laughing and connecting, you watch the countenance of the little boy. He relaxes. Why is that? Why is that? A lot of nonverbal communication is going on saying, he's safe, everything's safe, it's okay to talk, it's okay to do that. No frown, no nothing. Now imagine that a train roars down the tracks next to the park. And Junior's looking up at that train. The explosion of the sound frightens little Junior. So he instantly makes a beeline toward his mother's lap. She scoops him up and she holds him close. She buries his head in her neck and she covers his ears. She shields him from the noise and Junior calms down. Then after the train disappears, Junior's eyes come up to his mom's eyes. She smiles down at him. She says to him, boy, that was a loud train. Whew, that was scary, but it's okay. We're safe now. He relaxes. He relaxes. She gives him a little reassuring kiss on the nose. She snuggles him even closer. And she absolutely loves the fact that he needs me. Every mom likes that feeling. I just provided total comfort for my baby boy. Big problem when they're in their 20s. <laughs> Cut that out. <laughs> Not anymore. There's a reason the Bible said when a man meets a woman and marries her, he shall leave his mother. Don't jump in her arm and say, Mommy, a train. Oh, Junior, it's okay. Say, dude, you, you're married, man. Your wife does that now. Not me. Don't be running to me. But mommy. You're with me. This scene illustrates several of the core components of an attachment relationship. Junior keeps his eye on mom to assure that she's accessible and she's available. Then, when threatened, he seeks proximity to his mom. His mother provides what's called a safe haven, which comforts Junior when he's distressed, uptight, under pressure, stressed out. Once he's comforted, he uses his mother as a secure base from which he launches himself into further exploration. When mom is not there, there is no social referencing. When mom is not there, there is no close proximity. When mom is not there, there is no safe haven. When mom is not there, there is no secure base. There is an insecure base. So now we'll talk about what a secure style is. It's a consistent parent and a confident child. If we provide social referencing, if we provide proximity, if we provide safe haven, if we provide these things and, and there's a secure base, then there's, that's also that's done by consistent parenting, but that also produces confidence in a child. So let's take a look at it. God programmed into us from birth, from birth, to somehow know when our parents or parent are not nearby and danger lurks. Before children can talk, God put that in a baby to know that. This illustrates a crucial point in our discussion. It's what's called the fear of abandonment. Fear of somebody walking out on you. Fear of not having them anymore. It's a fundamental human fear. And it's so basic and so profound that it emerges before we even develop a language to describe it. 
The six-month-old cannot talk and tell you what they're feeling, but they can cry and act out in certain ways to say, when I need my mom, my mom's not there. When I need to feel secure, mom's not there making me feel secure. It's so powerful that it activates our body's autotomic nervous system and causes our hearts to race, our breathing to become shallow, rapid, stomach starts quivering, may get a little bit nauseous, may get sick, our hands start to shake. We feel a sense of panic that will not be satisfied until we're close to mom or dad again and we all of a sudden regain a sense of security. When parents are consistently in proximity, there is a confidence that's placed in the child and there is a security that is developed that helps them grow into a strong interdependent adult, not independent, interdependent adult. This is why scriptures like Psalm 46, 1 and 2 mean so much to us. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Everything can be shaking around us, but as long as we know that God is there and He is our refuge, I am not going to get nervous and stressed out about this. Family systems can be dissolving, but when you have a walk with God, and you know that He's not going to walk out on you, and you can have trust and confidence, Scriptures like, He will never leave you and He will never forsake you. I don't care who walks out on you, who abandons you. If you have a, a fear of abandonment, my God will never leave you. My God will never forsake you. He will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. It really doesn't matter. It does matter who walks out on us, but rest assured that when God is with you, He will be faithful. Jesus said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. If earthly moms and dads are producing a secure base by being close to you, God put that in a mom and dad. God put that in a child. If God put that in them, do you think that he's going to stay far away from you? He said, I'm not going to leave you comfortless. He said, in fact, when I look around and you're all of a sudden you're looking for social referencing and you're looking for proximity, get ready. He said right there in John chapter 14, I am coming to you. It can be in the hospital room, he's coming. It can be in your darkest moment, he's coming. It can be when everything, you're trying to put everything back together and everything seems to be falling out of your hands, God's on the way. He's not gonna leave you comfortless, he is gone. When you got the Holy Ghost, you reattach. You detach from your fallen sinful nature, you reattach to a holy walk with God and God will be with you to give you comfort, to give you comfort. Can we clap our hands to the Lord? God, we love you. I'm telling you, the Holy Ghost can heal some hearts tonight. The Holy Ghost can heal some hearts tonight. That's a, that's a secure style. Let's talk about the three insecure styles. People with an insecure attachment style generally have trouble connecting emotionally with people. They can be aggressive or unpredictable toward their loved ones. A behavior rooted in the lack of consistent love and affection that they failed to experience in their childhood. Each form of insecure attachment is characterized by its own behaviors and patterns of behavior in relationships. So the first we're gonna look at, the first of the three, is a dismissive parent and an avoidant child. Let's also say a child with a hardened heart. Need to assess some things. A dismissive parent produces a hard-hearted, avoidant child. Can produce, let's say it that way. Let's take a look at it. The ability to trust others is at the heart of intimacy. You have a hard time with intimacy in relationship? We would ask ourselves a question, was your trust violated? 
Because when trust has been violated, it's very hard to be intimate in a relationship. People with trust issues have intimacy issues. This is from an insecure attachment. The first of the three insecure styles is sometimes called the dismissive parent and the avoidant child. In this case, what we find is that the parents seem to be somewhat distant, somewhat emotionally unavailable for their children, neglectful, and even rejecting the child. And they are not at all attuned to what the child's experiencing, what the child's thinking, what the child is feeling, and what they're going through. It appears that the parent is unable to meet the child's emotional needs and respond in an appropriate way to what the child is doing and even begin to interact with the child in a healthy way. This can also lead to an excessive amount of negative emotion in the interactions of the child as the parent experiences frustration over not being able to connect well with her children or his children. And so it compounds and accumulates frustration because there's a lack of true connection. Usually parents who are in this category of parenting style tend to have their own excessive negative emotions and they end up expressing all of it on the children. Can, I just, can we pause right there and may I give you a word of warning? Your child is not a therapist to provide therapy to you. Your child is not a trash can where you dump negative, toxic emotions. Your child should never hear your issues that you're having with your spouse. Find somebody to talk to that can handle that and love you in spite of and not have to choose sides. You are called to take that arrow, your child, and point them into a destiny. Be there for them. They're not there for you so that you can have some dysfunctional, distorted therapy and pour yourself out on them where they're not big enough to handle that and they start blaming themselves if you get a divorce. They blame themselves because of bad issues in the marriage. They think they're damaged goods and they did something wrong because they got poured on and dumped on and dumped on and dumped on and dumped on. Made you feel good or made the parent feel good, made the child feel real bad. And they're going, you know what, when I turn 18, I am out of here, baby. When, I get, when I'm old enough to get out of the house, they start saving money when they're 12. Hey, you may not know about it, they got it hidden somewhere. Because they are making plans to get out, I promise you. They are ready to go. And you say, well, what happened? Mom, what do you mean what happened? But that's the problem with this dismissive parent. They don't even know that they don't know. And they live in denial. What they learned, what they learned, they were observing Ainsworth and Bowlby, what they learned is when separated, the child developed in a way that almost became unresponsive to their mother. Mom walked into the room, no response. Mom was gone for a long time, no response, just numb, oh well. When they were separated, the child didn't cry, didn't seem distressed when mom would leave, and then when mom would return, there was no response, very unresponsive. Totally different from the securely attached kids at face value. Listen, so, so they're doing the study, and, and I mean, you can observe, you can watch, you can watch, you can observe these types of things. It's like, how did you not even... How could you not even show any emotion whatsoever right there? What do you mean? And, and it, looks, it looks like that child now become adult, doing the same thing that they learned to do early on because of this insecure attachment. It's like, you, you're not feeling this right now? Like you're not, that's not normal to not feel something right now. It's not normal to just be in denial and say, everything's cool. No. An 18-wheeler just hit the car the bone's broken, skull split open, blood's everywhere, relationally. It's a metaphor, it's an analogy. And everything's cool. They learn to develop that to survive. They avoid, 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 avoid. But here's what they did. So they wanted to know, is that really, is that really what's going on? And so they started monitoring those same children 
And they hooked them up to see physiologically what in the world is really going on with this child because they look so calm, cool, and collected. They look like they're just handling everything just fine. It was an interesting finding. This is what they discovered. The heart rate and the breathing of the child is that the child is aware where the mo when the mother leaves and returns because it changes their physiology. They may look like they're calm on the outside, but on the inside they're going crazy. But they've just done this for so long that they've learned to just fake it till you make it. The child seems to be holding back in their relational style with the parent, indicating that maybe the relationship itself has a certain degree of pain. To minimize the pain, the child learns how to shut down and be unresponsive because it's dangerous to be too responsive to parent. Because if I'm too responsive, I'm going to get hurt again. So here are some signs of an avoidant attachment style and what it leads to. This individual is fearful and they will avoid commitment. They will avoid making friendships or deep friendships. They struggle to accept criticism because they were criticized all their life. They don't like to show emotions whatsoever. They'll accuse their friends or spouse, if they're married, of being too clingy or too needy. They dislike touch or physical closeness. They just, ugh, all that mushy stuff. They prefer to be alone when they're stressed or upset. They don't invest too deeply in relationships and they prefer to remain independent. The second, you with me? We're working together, it's okay. The second is a preoccupied parent that produces an anxious, or an anxious, excuse me, anxious, ambivalent child. This is the fearful heart. Ambivalence is having or showing confusing or contradictory attitudes or feelings towards something or someone. One day, I want to be with them. The next day, I can't stand to be with them. I love them at times, and I dislike them at times. I never know who I'm going to be talking to. And so it just makes me so ambivalent in this relationship. It's contradictory. It's confusing. I'd rather just get away from it all. The preoccupied parent, anxious, ambivalent child occurs when the parent, so here's some of the behaviors of the parent, seems to be somewhat distracted and preoccupied, perhaps with their own needs, their own wants, seeming to be somewhat more focused on their desires rather than what the child is doing, what the child needs. The parents in this style want to connect. They make attempts at connecting, but they lack the kind of skilled discernment of what the child is going through, so they're not able to enter empathetically into the child's world and be responsive to the child's needs. It's very artificial and very surface. Instead, the parents seem to jump into the child's world at inappropriate times having a very poor sense of timing, lacking a sense of proper boundaries between what the child is going through and what the parents are going through. As a result, the parent unpredictably, this is, this is, listen to this, unpredictably the parent meets the child's emotional needs. This sets up a pattern in the child of being anxious, and ambivalent about the relationship because I never know when she's going to show up. I never know when she's going to jump into my life. I never know when she's going to really meet my emotional needs. And so it makes this, this anxiety. Hey, hey, your mom called, your dad called. He's coming over today. What? I got to go, I got to go decorate something at the church. Uh-uh. can't wait for him to get here. You think we might be able to go to our favorite restaurant? See the ambivalent behavior? What does this do to the child? This can lead the child to be somewhat artificial in his or her interactions with others, leading to a performance in the child. Quote, I need to be what my parents want me to be rather than being true to what I'm really going through. This can lead to a dichotomy or double-mindedness, a false self, as it were. As the child develops, they can 
develop a kind of disconnect and make it hard for the child to learn how to relate in the real world in a more realistic and honest way they continue to grow. So here's some signs. Let's look at some signs. This is a sign of an ambivalent attachment style. Craving close relationships, but feeling unable to trust others. So they want the close relationship, but they can't trust enough to develop it. Becoming overly focused on romantic relationships and losing sight of other important aspects of life. Problems recognizing and honoring boundaries. Feeling jealous or anxious when separated from friends or spouse. Using guilt trips or other manipulative tactics to control friends or control spouse. Seeks constant reassurance from friends or spouse. Is everything still okay? Did I do something wrong? So now we come to the next. This is probably what, what they say is the worst. It's called unresolved, disorganized parent, disorganized, disoriented child, or we would call this the confused heart. Third kind of insecure attachment is described the unresolved, disorganized parent and the disoriented child. In this case, this is the most debilitating type of parenting style, where the parents see themselves to be probably somewhat traumatized in their life. In fact, they probably had a lot of traumatic situations through their life. They tend to be frightened, they tend to be disoriented, and oftentimes will project fear on the children. They're constantly giving mixed messages to their children. On the one hand, they'll tell the children, come on, I wanna be with you. Let's spend some time together. And then on a dime, they will turn right around and they will begin to communicate to them, I don't like you. You bother me. Why don't you go away? Why are you doing this? Child strategy. How does a child deal with that? How does a child deal with a parent like that? Talk about insecurities. Child strategy in this kind of early relational environment is basically total confusion. Child doesn't know how to make sense of these very conflicting messages and develops a kind of pattern of confusion and chaos internally. Total mistrust. Total mistrust. We're saying, trust God. We're saying, trust your brothers and sisters in the church. We're saying, trust other young people in the youth group. We're saying, trust young adults that you go to church with. But when you take these different styles of insecurity and all of a sudden we hurt one another, then we develop this thought process about the church and we develop this thought process about God. Can't even trust the church. Can't even trust God. I'm just going to go isolate from everything. Ladies and gentlemen, this is why I'm saying what happens in one emotional field will move into another emotional field called the church and we can have all of these styles and systems working at one time if we've ever needed a move of the Holy Ghost if we've ever needed divine touch with him, if we've ever needed to be patient with one another. So we must ask ourselves the question, how do those six pursuits in lesson one integrate into the third lesson? We need righteousness. We need godliness. We need faith or faithfulness. That means consistency across the board. It produces a secure family. It produces a secure church. And we trust one another. We're not saying, hey, I'm suspicious about you. What are you really up to? No, it's face value. This is who we are. God, transform our church. Don't quit on each other. Don't walk out. If you grew up walking out because you got hurt, it'll be easy for you to jump ship. But you're going to go to the next place and have to face it all over again. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but what in the world is the work of the Holy Ghost for? That's what the Holy Ghost is for. child doesn't know how to make sense of these very conflicting messages and develops a kind of pattern of confusion and chaos. Child seems to be stuck, stuck, frozen in the block of ice between approaching the parent and avoiding the parent. Sometimes this can lead to 
disassociation. I'll just disassociate. Totally disconnect and disassociate to survive. To survive. Problem is, once they disconnect and disassociate in one place, easy to transfer that and do it in every relationship. So one, so, so the couple that gets married and the first or second year, first year, second year, they start having conflict and they then were raised in a home like this, that, that it's like, look, I'll just disassociate. I'll just check out on you. And they just go numb on you. I mean, like they just literally, and you go, whoa, wait a minute, who did I marry? I never saw this person before we got married. Well, we didn't ever have any these serious conflicts like this. But we, we just threw down big time. I mean, we just had a throw down. And, and all of a sudden, it's like you look at them and you see something in their eye that you've never seen before. And it's like they glassy-eyed and they just go, Phoom. and like they had to do that all their life. It's easy for them. In fact, they get high off of it because it releases some hormones. You get amped up for it, man. You get amped up for it. You can be driving home, start thinking about things that you hadn't resolved, and you're about to walk through that front door, and you're amped up right there, man. You're amped up. It's, we're about to go down. And you can you could just go numb on them. You just don't care. I mean, like, you can just boom that fast. You become a really, really mean person very, very fast. Just feel like you cut everybody off. Here's the problem. Here's the problem with that. One of the problems with that, anger. So you're fueled and intoxicated and drunk on anger right there. Anger creates distance. Anger creates darkness. So you can't even discern and understand the decisions that you're making. Once you make those decisions, anger levels go back down. A week later, you're going, what in the world did I just do? How am I going to go back and fix all of that? And you either go back humbly and fix it, or you just say, you know what? I'm not going to fix it. I don't care. They did me wrong. Boom. And you just wall yourself off. This is the way they did it. This was the study. This is proven. Just boom. Just wall off. Okay. Then where? Then what? Then who? Then how? Wherever you're going, guess what? You're going to meet yourself there. You're going to meet other people. Different face. Same spirit. Same relational behaviors. You'll meet them. I'll just stay in my house the whole time. I promise you, Amazon's going to knock on your door. It's going to be that one. <laughs> oh, no, I thought I was getting away from them all. Look, here they come. I'm not home. <laughs> it's Mr. Amazon. No, it's not. You're just like my ex-husband. You look just like him. No, it's not him, I promise. <laughs> Check it out. Some signs. Signs of disorganized attachment. This is the crazy stuff, man. This is crazy stuff. This child. Depressed and full of anxiety. Depression and anxiety. Frequent outbursts and erratic behaviors stemming from the inability to clearly see and understand the world around them or even properly process the behavior of others or relationships of others. They develop an extremely poor self-image and can even turn to self-hatred. Start hating themselves. The perpetuation of trauma in relationships, especially those related to parenthood. For example, struggling to form healthy attachments with their own children just perpetuates. Right now, we need to talk about something called replacement defense. You need to learn this right now. Like the young ones, the reason we wanted all of you and some of the teachers to be in here, you need to learn this right now. When this behavior is repeated, a child can develop a callous heart 
It's like God can't even get through to them. They're, you're doing this number to them and they're not there. They got a callous heart. Repeatedly wounded emotionally, they're not about to let themselves be hurt again. Instead, they develop a system of replacing things for relationships. This is called relationship defense. Let's call her Confused Annie. Or Jumbled Up Jeremy. I don't know. Whatever name you want. She realized that if she allowed herself to really want her mom, she would be profoundly hurt again. So she switched. She switched from her desire for mom to things. Toys, she's young. Toys, knickknacks, candy, coloring pencils. She buried the need that she had for trust, intimacy and closeness and replaced the relationship need with things. Never again, she told herself, would she willingly reach out to anyone for emotional comfort? Often, the beginning or the genesis of addiction patterns goes all the way back to this process known as replacement defense. Not only did confused Annie use the replacement defense, but she also learned how to wall off her emotions. Here's some unhealthy responses. Confused Annie no longer expressed or acknowledged her feelings to anyone, including herself. This helped her to not feel so vulnerable and helpless. No longer did she feel compelled to cling to mommy's neck. No longer did she have to worry about whether mommy was coming to visit. No longer did she have to get angry when mommy left. No longer was she worried about mommy ever coming back into her life. She eradicated her need for mommy, and consequently, she eliminated her negative feelings about being separated from mom. She and many others build in a replacement defense and wall off people at the same time. They have convinced themselves that the safest way to live is to replace relationships with things and addictions. Why don't you stand with me? So we've talked about a secure style. We've talked about three insecure. And again, this is now this is more theory than theology, but let's go there. There's something, there's something that, that therapists and counselors called earned, earned secure attachment. I want you to listen to this. Earned secure attachment. Those who grew up in insecure attachment environments, almost unexplainably, develop a kind of secure attachment that cannot be explained based on their early childhood experiences. Like you look at their early childhood experiences, their textbook, textbook disorganized, textbook avoidant, textbook ambivalent. But somehow when they got into their 20s or 30s, they developed a secure attachment and so they started doing some research and they started studying they want to know well, how in the world did this happen here are a couple of ways here are a couple of ways the first thing is that some of them ended up getting married to healthier people or a healthier spouse than their parents that they grew up with and that healthier spouse contributed to the healing of the individual that oftentimes is very rare because, and, and what, what Bowlby, Ainsworth, and many, 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 many other therapists would tell us, beware. Often, but not always, we tend to select a spouse that's basically the same kind of attachment structure that we have, or at least a corresponding attachment structure. So if you're avoidant, you're looking for somebody to correspond. Will you cater to me? We ask questions like the avoidant, the ambivalent, the disorganized need a corresponding relationship that will affirm, validate, and give in to their insecure attachment. Because if we come in, if, if you're in a relationship, this happens in a church as well. People with insecure attachments will look for a church environment that will affirm, validate, and cater to their insecurity. So if a church is extremely healthy, 
or if they step into a family that's extremely healthy, the health of that family will push against the insecurities. They, the, the church, pastor, leaders, family will not validate and will not correspond to that and cater to what they're wanting. This is why there can be a holy tension inside of a church. Because when the holiness of God is working and there is a secure attachment to Jesus Christ and we are pursuing righteousness and holiness and people are not pursuing righteousness and holiness, somebody's got to give. And if a pastor or if a church ever allows the higher concentration of a church congregation to be insecure and sinful and unholy, it will be very hard to go back and change that whole system. That's why you cannot be a passive dad. That's why you cannot be a passive mom. That's why you can't expect a pastor to correct it all. He just got to reinforce your secure behavior. Can I get some help in this place? We need a healing church. We need a healing church. We need a place where people can walk in and say, it really doesn't matter how I was patterned and programmed growing up. I've got him in my life right now. And he is the one that's coming into my life. He's not catering to me. He's asking me to repent of these things. So they marry someone that says, sorry, but we're not going to repeat all that stuff. Not happening. Listen, this is important. When you're dating, and you guys, some of you young adults that are in pretty serious relationships right now, you need to listen to the pastor right now. If you've come from any of these that I just described, when you're dating, these issues will come to the surface and you will actually begin to negotiate with the person that you're dating to see if they will correspond to your insecure attachment style and see if you can manipulate and get them to conform to that system, thus reproducing it. You will do everything you said you would never do in your family system. So this is, oh, you just, I just can't trust him. Well, where's that coming from? you'll look to marry someone that will correspond to that. It'll be a very frustrating relationship. Second way is that you develop spiritually mature Christian friends that can offer a healing function that they say in every healing relationship, even with your friends, empathy and agape love. Empathy and agape love. So how do we take these insecure attachments and go back to lesson one and integrate patience, gentleness, love, faith, righteousness, godliness. When you're a true friend and some of these, some of these behaviors, these signs that we talked about bubble up, be loving enough to stick with it and don't shut down on them. Don't walk out on them. Don't get over here and say, man, I got something going on. We all have something going on. We all have something going on. Be loving enough and patient enough to be the kind of friend that can walk through a healing process with someone. It's so needed. It's so needed. We need each other. I'm telling you, we need each other. Most of all, some, it's a spouse. Others, it's friends. Most of all, most of all, what we're talking about here is this earned, secure attachment. So that's a theoretical way to say it. Here's what I'm going to say. The most important thing that could ever happen to you to break those patterns is to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. A relationship with God that brings healing and has reparative impact on one's attachment systems from the past. The Holy Ghost. Don't ever say, I will always be that way. The Holy Ghost will come into your life and it will provide a secure attachment. I don't care how insecure you've been. I don't care what you've been through. When you get the Holy Ghost, when you are, it's the breath of God. It's God breathing into Adam and the Holy Ghost breathing into you saying, attach to me and I will bring divine order into your life. That's why we preach Holy Ghost. That's why we preach Acts 2.38. It is the most powerful passage in the Bible that reattaches us. It's the power of the Holy Ghost. 
a Holy Ghost filled spouse, Holy Ghost filled friends, and the work of the Holy Ghost steps in and takes care of it. I want to open this altar to anyone that would like to come and pray. Anybody would just like to make a commitment. Here's, here's what the word said, Grant. It said, and you are what in him? Is it Colossians 2.10? And you are what in him? Who is the head of all? Complete. You're complete in him. Go check that word out. Go check out that word. It means to make full, but it also means to carry out and execute to the end. When we attach to him and we become complete in him, he gives us the power to carry out the work of healthy attachments. It's not just goosebumps on Sunday. We've got to have that. But the true work of the Holy Ghost will do the difficult work of breaking old patterns. And we are, when we are complete, full of Him, He says, we've got to execute this plan. And this plan is about a family system. And me being inside of you and you being complete in me, I'm going to give you power to execute the plan and bring this to a completed end where everything becomes healthy again. It's the power of the Holy Ghost. It's the power of the Holy Ghost. I'm going to tell them the truth. I'm so proud of y'all. So Holy Ghost proud of y'all. I want to pray. If you want to stay where you're at and pray, stay right there. If you want to come to the front, you can come to the front. Let's pray together. Let's pray together. Thank you so much for listening. Incredible things are continuing to happen.